Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to our event on the post-Castro transition in Cuba. The topic is alluring, calling us to move beyond what has been until now a drastic, dogmatic, authoritarian political dictatorship. When the Soviet Union collapsed, the Cuban dictatorship was forced to look for a new economic model, and slowly, very slowly and cautiously, it allowed token private business in the form of restricted restaurants for tourists, and Eureka, a better future seemed to arise on the horizon by the hand of tourism. It is a great privilege to have with us two magnificent guest speakers, both highly acclaimed experts on political and socioeconomic matters to give us their views on post-Castro's Cuba. The first speaker, Professor Eduardo Ulibarri, who, by the way, just published a book that uh, I unfortunately don't have with me. I left it in the, <laughs> the other room. Uh, but it could be of very great interest for all of us. The first speaker, as I said, uh, Don Eduardo Libarri, has an impressive bio. By the way, he forgot one important item in his CV. He brought, he brought me in into La Nación in 1982, where I still write on international relations. He's an impressive writer and speaker, as well as a great friend and colleague. He will be followed by a distinguished professor at Georgetown University. He's a prolific writer and much sought as a speaker. I'm talking, of course, of Professor Hector Chamis. He has been a frequent guest on Augustus guest speaker on Latin America at Hudson. He writes as a columnist for El País in Spain, among other media. He's highly known author with several books in his briefcase. I'm pleased to have discovered that we are somewhere related cousins. Another announcement. We will have a period of questions and answers at the end of both presentations. And without any further ado, I turn the podium to Professor Ambassador Ulibarri. Okay. Thank you very much, Jaime. No quieres hablar de aquí. Okay, well, that's okay. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here and to share the table with Jaime and Hector. Both of them are very close friends, but Jaime is a very, very long time friend, an old friend. I didn't want to say that, but we, we, <laughs> we have known each other and been friends for close, a little bit more than 30, well, close to 40 years. And it's a, it's a pleasure to, to be here. 
and we'll share some thoughts about something that is it's a very difficult exercise to try to look at the future of Cuba uh, in relation with the change of command of the Council of State and the Council of Ministers of Cuba. I think that when we faced uh, a challenging situation at this, there are certain areas to which we should look at. We should look at the words, what the people are saying. We should look at the facts and decisions that people take. We should look at the people themselves. And also, we should look at the context and the circumstances into which all these factors interact, and how the context and the circumstances might affect the results and even the decisions of the people. I think that when we look at, at Cuba and try to figure out whether there is a real transition that goes beyond people and that might end up at being a transition, not necessarily of regime, but of major policies, we should be very well aware of the underlying tensions that Cuba faces, especially the Cuban leadership or the Cuban people in charge of government. And it is the tension between the need to update the economy in order to avoid stagnation, collapse, and even social disruption. And on the other hand, the need to keep political control in order to avoid regime change. And these two elements that have always been in a constant tension, I think at, at this point are very, very relevant because of the circumstances and because of what the possibilities for, for the future in Cuba are. But I, I would say that the most reasonable assessment at this time, at least, about the transition is that we cannot expect from the point of view of the leadership, major changes, but rather gradual transformations of certain policies. However, the circumstances might change that. And I'm going to refer to both instances in this, in this uh, brief uh, talks. For words, I will gather basically on the speeches of Raul Castro and Miguel Diaz-Canel at the April 18th session of the National Assembly of Cuba, which was when Diaz-Canel was appointed as, as I said, the president of the Council of State and the Council of Ministers. That means that he was appointed as head of the government and head of the state. Those are his positions at this, at this time. If we look at the words that they used during their speeches, we can sort of characterize what they said around certain words. Loyalty, prudence, stagnation of the economy, frustration about the speed and results of the minor changes that have been undertaken in Cuba, some sort of fear to what the consequences of speeding up 
the changes may be, and of course, control, which is a major factor of the political leadership in Cuba. Well, as, as head of a state and head of government, Diaz-Canel does not control the real sources of power in Cuba, which are the Communist Party and the armed forces. According to the Constitution, and of course the Constitution of Cuba is a very flexible, you know, it's, a, it's a fixed text, but its interpretation is very flexible. But the Constitution says, and I quote one part of Article 5, the Communist Party is the superior leading force of the society and the state. And even Diaz-Canel, in his speech, recognized that when he said that only the Communist Party, superior leading force of society and the state, guarantees the unity of Cuban society. And at the helm of the Communist Party is still Raul Castro. His term there expires in 2021. And he announced that he will stay there in order to, to loosen up the transition. And then once he leaves that post, Diaz-Canel will take that post as well. And at the same time, Raul Castro stays as the head of the armed forces. And there is something very relevant uh, at, at this point and in any in any, in any moment as well. Because the armed forces are not only the depositaries of the military power, but they also control the major sectors of the Cuban economy. All the sectors that really count in Cuban economy are controlled by the armed forces. And they are also the interlocutors of many of the foreign investors that go into, into Cuba to have joint operations in, in, the, in the island. So on the, on the side of the distribution of power, we can say that Diaz-Canel has, of course, a very important role, but it's a role that is not as important as the one that Raul Castro will keep, at least until 2021 related to the Communist Party. We don't know what is going to happen to the armed uh, forces. On the other hand, we have to take into account that Diaz-Canel, although was born in 1960, so is, he is the post-historical generation of the Cuban structure of power, he is a son of the regime. He was a member of the Central Committee, or he was appointed member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party in 1991. In, 19, in 2009, he became Minister of Higher Education after uh, holding posts at the provincial level in the, his province, Santa Clara, in the center uh, of Cuba. In, 12, in 2012, he became Vice President of the Council of Ministers, and in 2013, he was first vice president of the Council of State and the Council of Ministers. So we, we can say that he has been meticulously groomed for his position. He has been very close to Raul Castro, and even in his speech to the National Assembly in April 18th, Raul Castro said that contrary 
to the case of other young leaders that had been promoted in Cuba, and they, they later were defenestrated. In the case of Diaz-Canel, they didn't accelerate the process. So it was, as I said, a meticulous process in the grooming of, of Diaz-Canel. However, being a child of the revolution and being a member of the close night of power in Cuba, Diaz-Canel at least have a somewhat reformist uh, rhetoric. And in his speech to the, to the National Assembly, he talked, for example, about the need for systematic relationship with the population. He's considered to be uh, a leader closer to the population than Raul Castro or his brother Fidel Castro, even physically closer to the population. He also talked about the need to deepen the analysis of problems related to society as a whole and the day-to-day -day life of, of humans. And he also mentioned the, the need, the desire to undertake, and I quote, a wide and open debate with the people promoting all possible ways to solve or attenuate the impact of those problems. So you can say, at least from his words, and maybe from the style of uh, behavior that he has in general uh, followed during his time at the helm of, uh, of power, that Diaz-Canel has a more open attitude to change and probably that he needs change more than Raul Castro and Fidel Castro, eh, of course. The key point here is where his sources of power are based on. You cannot say that he controls the Communist Party, because he doesn't. You cannot say that he controls the military, because he doesn't. You might say that he will eventually control the Council of Ministers and the Council of State, but all people there are members of the Communist Party, and they might follow more the instructions of the Communist Party than the instructions of the, of the president of the state and the, and the government, and the head of government. He cannot rely on the people because people in Cuba don't count as a real source of power. It's not a democracy. It's not a society where the civil society is strong. People cannot manifest themselves, at least up to this uh, point. He might rely on the technocrats in government that understand the challenges that they are facing, especially in the milieu of the economic uh, policy. He might also count on the pressures of foreign governments. I am not only referring in this case to the US or the European Union, but also of China, Russia, Vietnam, some other countries that in one way or another are trying to push Cuba a little bit more towards the path of real reform, at least on the economic uh, sector. So he might eventually count on the support of the Catholic Church, which is the only important institutional uh, 
area, a group of Cuba, or the only important institution of, of Cuba but the state. And, and I think that's, that's important to, to take into account. And of course, he might also count on the circumstances and the reality surrounding power in Cuba. Of course, that reality sometimes could be controlled from the top of government, but sometimes it might take its own dynamics and rather challenge power in Cuba. And, and, I, and I, I'm going to, to refer in to that uh, shortly. So what it's important to take into account in the near future in order to, to translate what we perceive from the words, from the intentions, from the characters of this whole drama. Well, I think there are three key elements here. One is the appointment of the Council of Ministers. Uh, the, uh, the appointment of ministers uh, was delayed in the, in the last uh, um, session of the National Assembly. According to the Constitution, they should have been appointed on the same day that Diaz-Canel was appointed as head of the Council of Government and the Council of Ministers. However, it was postponed until July. And I think that that reflects the need that in that close night of, of power, they have to negotiate what people are going to be doing what. So I think it's important to wait until July to see what is the cast of characters that will be at the helm of the different ministries in Cuba that will give us a certain uh, point of reference in order to determine the distribution of areas of power. That is one point, very, very important. The other one <clears throat> is what might come of the new constitution. There is a whole process going on in Cuba in order to have a new constitution. What might come out of that is very difficult to, to say. Raul Castro said in his speech that it's necessary to reform the constitution according, and I quote this, to the transformations in political, economic, and social order. So there is a will of updating the constitutions and supposedly to reflect a little more the realities of the economic, the political, and the social conditions of, of Cuba. However, he also said that there will be no change in the revocable character of socialism or the role of the Communist Party as the organized vanguard and superior leading force of society and the state. So what the Constitution finally will say, it's important, not necessarily because it will be followed to the letter, but it will give us some signs about where the government will uh, uh, walk uh, in, the, in the future. And the third element, which I think is very, very important, is the economy. And I, I want to, to refer a little bit in more detail to the economic challenges of Cuba and what I consider to be, at this point, 
the mother of all challenges that the Cuban economy faces in terms of the need of reform. Well, of course, there are many challenges which are usually in, in command control uh, economies, such as Cuba's uh, economy. And in the end, we can say that the problems of the Cuban economy are the problems of the regime. It's, it's, a, it's a regime that has been outdated. It's an approach to the economy that has been outdated by the reality. And as I said, in that tension between changes as little as possible to remain in power, uh, it's, it's very difficult to, to conciliate the needs of the reality with the needs of reform in the, in the economy. We know that the Cuban economy is highly dependent on foreign agents and contingencies. Cuba produces very little. And so, although it's a very close country, it depends a lot on what is happening outside and what the generosity and solidarity of other countries are or other governments towards the government in Cuba. Also, the performance of the Cuban economy in recent years was, has been dismal. For example, GDP decreased 0.9% in 2016, and this is according to official data, so it could be lower. Uh, it increased, also according to official data, 1.6% last year, although the Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, the ECLAC, okay, considers that the, the growth might have been in, in between not 5% and 1% of GDP. And the official prospects for this year uh, is 2%. And most people think that it's impossible to achieve due to other circumstances that the economy is facing. Besides that, there have been two consecutive years of 12% deficit in the budget of Cuba, 12% in relation with the, with the GDP, which is also, it puts a lot of pressure on the financial sector of the, of the economy. Despite the fact that in 2015, Cuba renegotiated its debt with the Club of Paris, and then it started to renegotiate its bilateral agreements with many countries, again, it is, a, it is facing delays in payments of its foreign debt. So the influx of foreign exchange into Cuba has diminished. Um, other, other problems that the government is facing and the impacts on the influx of foreign exchange is the lower price of, Q, of sugar and nickel, which are two major exports of, of Cuba. Also, although tourism has been increasing, the recent decisions on the part of the U.S. government on imposing certain restrictions, especially on U.S. Well, on, on US travelers, uh, are, are, are considered to be uh, a possible source of not a diminishment of, of the, in the number of tourists, but at least a lowering of the rate of, of increase. Venezuela has curtailed many shipments of oil to Cuba which are the major source 
of, of, uh, of for sustaining the economy. According to some data, those shipments have decreased at least 40% between the, the amount in 2016 and nowadays, so it's a major decrease. The possibility um, of selling professional services, I think sending people, especially from the health sector, and getting money from countries such as Venezuela, Bolivia, Brazil, and even Angola is diminishing as well. Uh, also, there is an increase in the price of oil that Cuba, besides all the shipments that are uh, sent by Venezuela at special prices, have to buy a lot of oil in the open uh, market. There have been a tightening in the credit flows and financing, and there is a major challenge, which is how to integrate the official sector of the economy with the emerging private sector of Cuba, which is a highly controlled private sector. So that, don't, 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 don't consider that, that it's a very dynamic private sector, and rather the opening that had been, especially in 2016 and, 2000, and the first half of 2017, has been closed a little, a little bit. But the major challenge and the major need for change that Cuba faces in terms of the economy is the dual currency regime. That's, that's a barrier that if the government doesn't surpass, it will be impossible to have some sort of real economic change. But at the same time, it is a regime that once is changed, the challenges in terms of social control, on control of prices in the economy, will be very, very difficult to undertake. The, the need uh, for exchange unification in Cuba has been realized for many, many years. Even since 2013, there was an official uh, document coming out of the government saying that it was moving towards exchange unification. But it has not happened. And in his uh, speech uh, in December of last year about the economy, Raul Castro said about exchange unification the following, the most determinant process to advance in updating the economic model with its um, exchange unification. And without solving it, it's very difficult to advance in a proper way. We cannot wait more for its solution. As you might know, Cuba at this point have two rates of exchange. In fact, it has two currencies, the Cuban peso, CUP, COP, which roughly has an official exchange of 25 to the dollar, and the Cuban convertible peso, the CUC, COC, which has a parity with the dollar. And this dual currency generates all sorts of distortions on the economy. It's a, it's a source, for example, a, of 
limiting the possibility of exports of Cuba is a source for um, not showing the inefficiencies of many industries uh, which are oriented towards uh, consumption in Cuba. It's a source of political control. It's a source at the same time of price controls, but it's a source also of scarcity. Once the unification happens, and it will happen, because there is no way for the Cuban economy but to have a unification of currencies, instead of long lines of people for buying the, the uh, food or other supplies, we'll have long price increases. And that will change completely the attitude and the, I would say, the setup of the social construct of Cuba and the, the nature itself of the regime. So I think that the, the potential uh, of this currency unification for change in Cuba is very high. And probably it's one of those cases where the tension between political control and the need to change the economy collapse in a more open way with very, very uh, risky consequences or potential consequences for the, for the regime. Well, in the middle of all of this, you might think, and I have thought a lot about that, then what about the Cuban people? What are they doing? What their expectations are? What are the possibilities for them of organizing in one way or another? Might they be able to affect in one way or another what is happening at the high levels of, of power? About that, I have uh, mixed feelings. Up to now, I think that most Cubans in the island are in, are in the business of surviving. Surviving or becoming small entrepreneurs, if you have especially uh, relatives in, in outside that uh, send you remittances. But people are not thinking a lot about politics and political change. I remember having read a lot of uh, reports from Havana when the change uh, of command of the Council of Ministers and Council of the State happened. And most of them coincided in the fact that most people didn't pay attention to that. People were not watching the, the TV. They were talking about baseball, as is one of the usual topics of um, conversation in Cuba. But people didn't care about that for two reasons, from my point of view. The first is because they don't consider that the transition in people is relevant for the transition in the regime. And secondly, because they don't consider that they have the possibility of changing anything. So there have been some sort of dismantling of the possibilities of an organized opposition in Cuba up to this point, at least. Also, the, young, the real young generations, people in their 20s and, and 30s, they are thinking more, more about leaving the country, which is more difficult now than, than before, uh, changing their lifestyles, uh, consuming imported goods, if that is possible, and trying to connect throughout mobile phones and the internet, which are very, very scarce in the, in the island. So in these circumstances, I really think 
that the only possibility that the people in a non-organized way may become an agent of change if, if the currency unification transform completely their daily lives. And they will need to enter into a more, uh, let's say, open capitalist um, way of behaving in terms of economic uh, factors. So to sum up, I would say this. Diaz-Canel is a product of the regime. However, it's somebody that, from my point of view, has a more clear, clear um, perception of the need for change in Cuba. He is somebody that, he, if he wants to move forward in, uh, towards change, have to take into account two major constraints. One, the real sources of power in Cuba. Second, the effects of those changes in the stability of the regime. But third, that there are a lot of circumstances, a lot of challenges in the context, especially the economic context, that might make any design that you have for change in Cuba lose control and move in a different direction. And that direction could be more openness in a not necessarily very organized way, or a pullback and more repression in order to avoid the risks of, of regime change. So this will be basically my, my presentation. And of course, I will be open for questions or comments when the moderator considers uh, suitable yes. to do that. Thank you very much. Now uh, we invite Professor Hector Shamis to the podium. Um, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Jaime, for your hospitality. And you know, it is true that I'm here a few times a year, and, and I cannot say no to Jaime. Now they're going to accuse us of uh, accuse you of nepotism because <laughs> you are cousins. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, but thank you, Eduardo, for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you again. We, we, we were together, we were <laughs> remembering two years ago in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where I'm from, and uh, at a conference at a think tank. We were linked, both of us, Cadal, think tank in, in Argentina. And, uh, and it's a pleasure to be here because uh, changes in Cuba, or maybe no, no changes in Cuba, is timely, is important. Uh, I'll try to go through what I prepared, also trying to have a simultaneous dialogue with Eduardo, who just uh, presented some insightful ideas, and some I have some overlaps, some differences. But I'm going to also take the opportunity to say something that Eduardo didn't address, address a topic of extreme, uh, extremely critical importance in the region, which is Eduardo didn't say the word Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And all of this that are at stake in potential changes in Cuba will definitely have impact on Venezuela. By the way, uh, apropos of foreign aid, Venezuela just two days ago imported uh, 400 million 
dollars in oil because PDVSA doesn't produce anymore and ship the subsidized oil to Cuba at a time when Venezuelans don't have food, don't have medicines, and, and don't have water, don't have electricity, etc. So uh, I'll try to put that in, 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 the, in the narrative. The other thing is that Jaime told me that I, I should speak for 30 minutes. No, 45, you said. As long as you want. As long as you, no, I, I'm not prepared for that. This reminds me, when, when I was a grad student, I was preparing my job talk for the job market. We used to time 45 minutes. But once you're in Washington, you have to say everything in 10 minutes. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of be uh, as long as possible. <laughs> but I'm not prepared for that. What, what I want to talk about is a basically simultaneous translation in English to English of a column I wrote for a país you know, three, four weeks ago, or maybe more, about changes in Cuba, uh, which was not changes in the regime, not a regime change, mm -hmm. but a, a change, a transition within communism. Uh, I did some work in the 90s, actually, on post-communism. And, uh, and at the time, uh, on, on Central Europe, for the most part, Hungary, Poland, Czech Republic, etc. I wrote on prioritization there. And, uh, and at the same time, that coincided with a special period in Cuba. And, and everybody expected, uh, well, now it's coming to Cuba. Now, now market uh, reforms in Cuba and then political transition, it didn't happen. And I have something to say about that, which has to do with Venezuela as well. But first of all, uh, Diaz-Canel pledged loyalty, but uh, every Delphine pledges loyalty the first day. And, and many of them are big traders. Uh, in, the, in the Americas alone, you look at Ecuador today, you see a big trader there. You look at Santos finishing his second term in office, a big trader of the, the one who literally appointed him president or appointed him candidate one should say. Uh, it is possible that this may happen in Cuba, if not for conviction of the Escanel necessarily, because of a matter of bureaucratic survival, which in state socialism is a fundamental aspect uh, of regime survival and transformation at the same time. Uh, I do outline here, in that sense, three potential scenarios, sometimes hypothetical scenarios, sometimes wishful thinking in terms of changes in, in Cuba, and not necessarily changes that will go in, a, in the direction of constructing a, a democratic uh, society with fundamental rights and freedoms, which there is none of that, uh, but some changes that will perhaps introduce in the short term some relaxation uh, in the otherwise close character of the regime. First of all, borrowing from the history of communism, uh, the first scenario outlined here is Diaz-Canel, the revisionist. And, and of course, the revisionist means uh, Nikita Khrushchev's uh, secret speech in 1956 to the 20th, 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, where he denounced Stalin, basically. He denounced the cult of personality. And uh, uh, the characterization of Khrushchev as revisionist was Mao's characterization, who, who had a, a very strong 
footed, you know, very strongly, strong rooted alliance with Stalin. But the truth is that uh, the personalism of Stalin was a deviation from the orthodox standards of Marxist Leninism, uh, which never, never designed a, a social system. Uh, based on, on a charismatic leader or even if non-charismatic leader that, with a cult of personality. Uh, 60 years later, that's probably one potential scenario in Cuba. There is one Castro is gone, the other one is gradually going out of power. Uh, he's running the party, uh, absolutely. Uh, but he's in his 80s himself and, and it's probably time to uh, institutionalize the system of rule. Uh, the sultanistic aspect of the dictatorship in Cuba, the sultanistic, the patrimonial, personalistic ru rule, uh, is no longer reproducible once a Castro, the Castro name, is no longer running uh, the public uh, affairs. Uh, I think. Uh, the viable and the only viable thing to do for Diaz-Canel is to step away from that, institutionalize, and, and resolve also a, a parallel contradiction with the traditional standards of state socialism, which is uh, to finally create a, a regime uh, based on, on the party. In other words, Communism is not a military regime. Another deviation in the Castro, uh, in the, both Castro's uh, rule was to create a personalistic and military dictatorship at the same time. Communism is ruled by the party, as Eduardo mentioned, the party of elites, the Leninist party, a party of elites, uh, a party of enlightened professionals, civilian, uh, with complete subordination of the army to, the, to these civilians. That was altered dramatically in Cuba, where the party uh, was at times subordinated itself to the army. And of course, the Castros came from there, a, a violent revolution. Uh, Raul Castro will still be uh, in charge of the army, but that's not going to last. And, uh, and one potential solution to this contradiction, to use their language, uh, this tension, I would rather say, is to go back to the basics and the fundamentals of Marxist-Leninism as a way also of relegitimizing the regime and the, and the revolution. So we'll see. Second scenario I outlined there was Diaz-Canel, the reformist. Uh, Diaz-Canel, the Janos Kadar of Cuba. Janos Kadar was uh, the Hungarian secretary general of the Communist Party who in uh, 1968 introduced the new economic mechanism. The new economic mechanism is a series of measures uh, to liberalize agriculture, trade, and to eliminate quotas and introduce incentives to allow private property that down the road was known as goulash communism. Goulash communism was the most ambitious of all the Central European and East European countries of the Soviet bloc was goulash communism was the most ambitious market reform uh, within the central plan. Uh, a dramatic relaxation of the central plank uh, that actually made Hungary 
uh, well prepared for the later changes of late 80s or, and, and 90s. Actually, one important aspect of this is that uh, Hungary initiated uh, the prioritization of state-owned enterprises before the Berlin Wall collapse. It was administered by the Communist, Communist Party elite, and, and it was beginning to have conversations with foreign investors, largely German investors, to go in the direction of a more ambitious form of marketization. As I said, Cuba was in, in that process in 1991 when the subsidies from the Soviet Union ended, uh, constitutional changes to property, the introduction of the bimonetary system, competitive incentives in agriculture, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I remember in the 90s I had a grad student who was writing a dissertation on uh, reform socialism in Cuba, which was, as we know, truncated in 2005 uh, because of Petro Caribe. Uh, Venezuela, Chavez replaced the Soviet Union in terms of a big benefactor, and Cuba has become ever since, and yet again this same week, we have another little gem of that, Cuba became an oil exporter country without producing any oil. Uh, how did that happen? Well, the subsidized oil that Cuba got from Venezuela was then a portion of that was used uh, with a severe ra rationing, by the way, because they wanted to have exportable, uh, an exportable balance to go in the competitive market uh, when, the dollar, when, the, when oil was especially very high, above $100, $130 a barrel back in 2010, 2011, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, that is also now coming to an end. It's unsustainable. It was a rent for the nomenclatura. They appropriated those resources, and they never trickled down to the, uh, to the to society. Uh, it's unsustainable on the supply side of this equation because Venezuela is not producing any no, any oil. It's it's depleted foreign reserves. It has law. They have sold gold. Uh, this is the last attempt, perhaps, or we'll see. Maybe there is another shipment soon. But this is one of the last attempts, certainly of Caracas to have Cuba on their side uh, in the runoff, in the, in the, in the run-up of this uh, fraudulent election uh, in 10 days or less. Uh, this system as it, as, as, it, as it stands is unsustainable. Cuba will have to go back to some form of uh, special period. Cuba will have to reintroduce market mechanisms, open up to foreign investment. What they've done to satisfy Washington under the Obama thaw was certainly not enough. They haven't done more than, more than some form of cuenta propismo, which I don't know, self-employment. Uh, but there's a whole you know, literature coming out now on cuenta propismo, that's a term in Spanish, self-employment self in Cuba. Uh, it's not enough to create jobs and generate wealth. Uh, that will have to be done in a more ambitious way. Diaz-Canel has an opportunity to be the reformist, the economic reformist of a, as, as Eduardo outlined very clearly, uh, a, a stagnant economy uh, with decreasing, dramatically decreasing living standards for the population. Uh, and of course, if in the process, I also may, may want to add, if in the process they lose power um, because of this, you know, all sequence that we've been discussing since the 80s and 90s, 
whether it's economic reform first and political democracy later or the other way around, but uh, Hungary may be seen as a long-term and slow-motion economic reform trigger afterwards by political reforms and democracy. Well, there is some hope for uh, the communists in Cuba. In fact, in Hungary, in 94, they came back to power through an election uh, and refurbished as social democrats. So maybe there is hope. Maybe they, they, if, if, if power is lost, well, power is always lost. It's about time that they realize that. Uh, third scenario I have here is Diaz-Canel de Chavista. Uh, this because there is something that I find particularly perverse in, in Marxist uh, thinking, which is the notion of uh, false consciousness. Uh, it, is, it is something like, like this. Well, if the population supports us, Marxist reasoning on this says, it's obviously because the objective conditions for the revolution is there, are there, and, and this is the organized proletariat who is about to take power and who sees in us, the Communist Party, the carrier of the torch and the, the, the legitimate uh, ruler. Uh, and here we go. Now, if the population doesn't support us, uh, well, it's because of false consciousness. That's what capitalism does. They, you know, they give you goods, they give you smoke and mirrors, and, and it creates false consciousness. That's pretty much what the, the Chavista government has been doing. That's what the Maduro government has been doing. In 2005, no, I'm sorry, 2015, in December 2015, uh, the uh, PSUV, the dominant party in Venezuela, lost an election where they lost control of the House, of the, of the National Assembly, the only chamber, actually, not the, the parliament. And he came on TV that night and said, well, uh, that was a mistake. The vote you just cast was a big mistake. It was a vote against yourself. Look at the language. It was a vote against yourself. Uh, it's, it's sad. It's sad because I was going to build 500,000 houses. But now, I'm not going to do it. And it's not because I can't, because you can be sure, I can't build those 500,000 houses. It's on YouTube. You can see it you know, when you get home today. Uh, but I asked you for support, and you didn't give it to me. Uh, in other words, the Venezuelans cast a vote against themselves. Therefore, they will be punished. And this is at the roots, this is at the roots of uh, Marxist-Leninism. If you're with us, we'll be nice. But if you're not with us, we'll be, we'll be here anyway, because you need re-education. Re we'll be here to make sure you're, you get re-educated. Re and this is a possibility for Diaz-Canel to become the Chavista, holding on to power, uh, not giving up anything, not feeding its people, not curing its people, uh, but uh, in a way perversely justifying that in terms of this reasoning of false consciousness. And this is a possibility. Uh, now, which is uh, the way 
That also may happen when, without the Castro's in office, Cuban civil society, who has been, uh, which has been rather passive compared to Venezuelan civil society over the last decades, uh, less organized, less mobilized, more intimidated with low intensity coercion and, and surgical, actually, attacks on civil society organization, much smarter than the brutality of uh, the Venezuelan regime. But without the Castro's in town, there is a possibility that there are more incentives to get out of the house, get out of home, and go to the streets and get organized. Civil society remains very incipient in terms of, of, of organization. It is possible that at the time they restored to that form, self-justified uh, in terms of false consciousness. And again, uh, you're against us, you're mistaken. We're going to stay because you need, this. you need us, even if you don't know, even, even if you don't know that uh, you need us. Now, finally, uh, this uh, also offers a, a fourth opportunity for Diaz-Canela and for the Communist Party elite in Cuba uh, that it doesn't seem, in my view, likely to happen, at least not in the short run, which is the Gorbachev scenario. When uh, the Berlin Wall collapse and the civil society, the peoples of the East, East and Central European countries were on the streets and crossing borders, crossing borders massively to West Germany. Uh, everybody was expecting Prague, 68, Budapest, 56. And Gorbachev was noble, generous, and ultimately statesman when he said, no, we're not sending the tanks. And of course, that produced the most significant change of uh, the late 20th century, I would say, but the most significant change in the world in the virtually the early 20th century. Uh, so the Escanel has an opportunity to be a noble trader, uh, as a delphine, a noble trader that is unlikely to happen. But we'll see, because the other thing about Diaz Canel is that he's not an army officer. He's a party bureaucrat. And in the reorganization of power in a more orthodox way, orthodox in terms of Marxist Leninism, he may well be revitalizing the rule of the party, uh, re upgrading the power of the bureaucracy uh, like him. Uh, and in that process, uh, there may be a, an opening for maybe not a Gorbachev who tore down the wall. Well, he didn't tear down the wall, but he let it happen. Uh, as you remember, you know, that speech. Uh, but in that process, there is therefore the, I would say, very small probability of a transition, not within communism, but a transition uh, away from communism in the future. Thank you so much. That's it, it is. Okay. This is the minute everybody was waiting for. <laughs> to start fighting with. <laughs> okay, since you are such an enthusiast over there. Sure. 
Hi, good afternoon. Alex Sanchez, I'm an analyst here in Washington. I have two questions. One, uh, you talked a lot about the, the projects that the Kyongrom are trying to carry out to promote the economy. One that you did not mention was the Mariel port. Uh, the Brazilians tried to expand with uh, was like a billion dollars, two billion dollars. President Dilma, no, former President Dilma was in Cuba to expand it. What happened to the port? Is it still operational? Or is it like accepting post-Panamax type vessels? Um, the second question will be, when you talked about the, the future of Cuba, the possible scenarios, I guess my question will be, it will sound silly to say it out loud, but what is the plan for the Diaz Canal? Is the plan to, for him to stay in power for the next 30 years, just like the Castros did? Um, is, is that the, the intention right now, that he will take power of, of the armed forces and the Communist Party and just perpetuate himself? Or is the plan right now that he will go burn for you know, 10 years and maybe switch to somebody else? Thank you. Sí, eso. Una a una. Vamos a coger esto. Eduardo. Vamos a ir uno por uno o we just take a few? I think it's better one by one. Okay. Okay, maybe a couple of thoughts. Uh, the the Mariel port, which is more than that, it's a Mariel free zone. It's operas operational, but it's not operating, you know, in the sense that very few companies have been established uh, there. And as you know, Brazil was the, well, you mentioned that Brazil was the major supporter of, of that. Uh, even the Brazilian construction company, Odebrecht, has left Cuba because of problems of payment. And, you know, the issue of the dual currency, the issue of the lack of legal stability, the issue of transfers of capital outside the country, all those uh, issues undermine the possibility of making this free zone really operational. But it's, it's a possibility. And, of course, in Diaz-Canel, the reformist, uh, th that might be uh, a source of certain oxygen, but it's not that big as to support uh, the economy of, of Cuba. And uh, well, it's very difficult to say what might be in the mind of Diaz-Canel, but he certainly has term limits which have been established uh, by the Communist Party. And I am almost sure that they will be uh, put into the, the new constitution. So I, I don't think that the political reality in Cuba will allow him to stay more than 10 years in power. Probably he might stay less. You know, that's, that's a, a more of a possibility than stay more. Yeah, ju just uh, two little footnotes to that. Uh, uh, Marcelo de Brecht, by the way, was in Havana when they inaugurated the port and was there as a, uh, with Dilma Rousseff, you know, and, you know, as a virtual foreign minister. It was a, a an act of state, um, but it's exactly right. It's finished, it's a free zone, it's operational, but not in much of an operation. Now, 10 years is an eternity uh, in politics. Uh, it's fine, I mean, I think it's fine. Uh, lots of things will probably change in, in Cuba in 10 years. I think there is a fundamental aspect here the name Castro will no longer be around, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that's, that's going to signal opportunities, will open opportunities for transformations uh, and, uh, 
and also will, will be an incentive for civil society to become more organized and more active. Okay. We'll go to the left now. Sure. Please uh, give us your name and affiliation. Herb Rose. Um, I'm wondering how much um, in the future of Cuba will depend upon its relationship with the United States and what the government in the United States does uh, with regard to um, uh, Canal. Well, there's a change of uh, <coughs> message from Washington, clearly. And, uh, and that worries uh, the party leaders and bureaucrats in Havana, certainly. It's not clear what the expectations are the, from the administration here in Washington, but certainly there is a departure from Obama's uh, soft uh, take on, on the regime. A little bit on the side of economic reform, Cuenta Propismo in self-employment, uh, and virtually nothing on the side of political and civil reforms, right? I mean, and actually, it's, it's a, a paradox there is that the reestablishment of diplomatic relations with the, with the U.S. was actually, for the dissidents, was worse than, than an improvement. Was, it got things worse because when Madonna goes there and Mick Jagger goes there, uh, the rallies to pick up the dissidents increase because the regime doesn't want the figures of notoriety, of international notoriety to to see them, right? That's that's the technique for decades. And well, these international events began to happen more frequently, and so uh, the dissident groups, uh, you know, ladies in white and others, ended up in jail with more frequency than in the past. All of that without the restoration of any civil or political rights. Uh, so uh, Washington is tougher uh, on both ends of the equation, the economy and the polity and, the, and society. It's not clear yet what the expectations are, but, uh, but that's going to change, most likely. Uh, and of course, uh, I think the, the, critical, uh, the critical point here is, is Venezuela. What's going to happen with Maduro? And uh, the, the, if Maduro stays in power and succeeds in constructing a hegemonic party uh, regime, uh, a la Cuba, which didn't happen, didn't have until now. I mean, it was a more of a multi-party authoritarian system. Uh, but if it goes full-fledged in the direction of a single-party regime, uh, well, then uh, that's that's going to be one scenario. Uh, but if Maduro collapses in some way, whatever that means, and it's hard to you know, envision that, how that would be, honestly, to me at least, well then Cuba will be you know, uh, a little more isolated. And, and that's, that's going to you know, that, be a, a critical point in this. 
Teresa Green era. something. I think well, the U.S. has always been and will always be very important for Cuba because of well, geographical, economic, and demographic situation realities. I happen to think that the, the policy that Obama undertook was wiser than the one that uh, Trump is taking. First, because the previous policy had not worked. That's a reality. So if something doesn't work, you need to fix it. <laughs> it's, uh, and, and, and I think the approach of Obama that was to promote change throughout, um, let's say, seduction is more effective than to try to promote change throughout confrontation, especially when you have a juncture in Cuba in which I am almost sure there are sectors in power that would like to change. And probably the fact that the US is perceived or at least presented again as a major enemy uh, gives those people less impetus for change. If you could see the U.S. as not a friend, but some, con or, but a country that you might rely on for certain initiatives, you might be bolder in trying to promote a change. I think this uh, current policy on the part of the Trump government, which is more rhetorical than real, uh, has given more uh, instruments to the hardliners in the in the regime than those to to are trying to promote change. If I may say, um, I agree with Eduardo. The embargo didn't work. Mm -hmm. We know that. Uh, now, lifting the embargo in exchange for nothing was not the smartest you know, foreign policy you would see, you know, in the part of Washington. Uh, you lift the embargo, you restore re diplomatic relations, while you introduce rights, you reintroduce rights that uh, were taken away from the Cuban people 60 years ago. And that didn't happen. And the U.S. was in a position to, to do exactly that. Uh, and that's, it is true, the administration, the current administration is very rhetorical, uh, it's hard spoken, uh, it's unclear. Uh, what concrete form will that that will take? But it's calling things for what they are. I think the the, the Cuban people are still under the coercion. Uh, the U.S. has made concessions uh, and has get, gotten very very little in exchange, uh, other than the Obama trip uh, to Havana to watch baseball and you know, and and and. and and outline the American constitutional system in the Cuban National Assembly to educate you know, Communist Party parliamentarians. But I, I tend to think that was not enough. OK. Don Javier? Thank you. I'm Javier Roberto. I'm the former Spanish ambassador here. Um, well, 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 listen to both of you. And thank you very much, by the way. And thank you, Ambassador Darmbrou. This is the first time as far as you know, that this city is uh, organizing something similar on Cuba. So congratulations on that initiative. Now, when listening to both of you, um, the, the, the reference which came to my mind was Il Gato Pardo, you know? It was Lampedusa. It was, uh, we have to change everything just to prevent anything from changing, you know? That's, uh, 
And Canel sounds very much like that. Uh, I mean, the wishful thinking is with all of us and with all of you, and uh, we do hope that something will change. But uh, I mean, realistically speaking, they are not ready to change. The, the things they are doing is just to prevent anything from changing in, in real terms. The second point is that uh, when listening to Ambassador Ulibarri, well, it's not new, but uh, the disaster of Cuba, uh, both in political terms, as far as the ideology is concerned, and in economic terms, is really staggering. I mean, how on earth weren't they able to try and look like the Chinese or the Vietnamese? Uh, well, after all, they've kept the, the, the uh, ideological orthodoxy and, uh, and the dictatorship of the party, but at the same time, they've been able to introduce some degree of rationality in the working of the economic system. Why on earth the Cubans, these uh, Cubans, uh, the Castro regime, their regime as such, has not been able to do anything in that realm? I mean, it's true that at the end of the day, the clique is so uh, married to the power that they don't want to leave anything, not even one single piece of the economic uh, working of the system. The third point is that in spite of, of, of that catastrophe, they've been able to colonize Venezuela, which is really uh, fantastic. Uh, I mean, after all, Venezuela right now continues to be a colony of, of, of Cuba. Uh, are they these, uh, these uh, revisionists uh, like Canel, are they trying to stop being the colonizer of Venezuela? Are they trying to change the foreign policy from that viewpoint? Because it's not only Venezuela, it's all the others. I mean, all those questions appear uh, quite normally to, to the mind when trying to imagine what Canel is going to mean and what all the others are going to mean in this uh, situation. Thank you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, um, about the degree of change. No, I, I agree, you know, and, and the phrase that you have mentioned have gone through my mind many, many times when, when I see what is happening in Cuba. The issue here is that sometimes you intend to pursue a certain line of change, but reality disrupts that. And I think that the reality of Cuba by itself and in its interactions with the outside world, and well, I, I, I gather here on what um, Hector said about Venezuela, is so difficult that the possibility for any regime to control change is not very, very high, especially if you are not a Castro, especially if it is very difficult at this time for Cuba to find another godfather. It had the Soviet Union up until 1990, basically. Then it substituted the Soviet Union for, for Venezuela after the special period, which was very harsh, and at the same time very reformist in some uh, regards. But after Venezuela, who might the godfather be? The Chinese are not going to be that, because the Chinese are more, you know, they are more organized in, in their economic policies and the way they approach exchanges. The Russians are not going to be that again. And beyond that, there is no other possibility, because, well, the US is not going to be that. So I think that probably Diaz-Canel wants to change also that nothing changes. But at the same time, probably the outline of change that he has in his mind 
and that reality may impose in will go beyond the possibilities of controlling that. Uh, well, you mentioned, well, Cuba is a catastrophe indeed in, in terms of political, social, and economic uh, regard. And it's really surprising how the Castros have been able to stay in power for so long in such circumstances. Um, you know, uh, well, I, I was more in Cuba, I am Cuba, okay? so uh, I am Costa Rican as well, and that passed throughout my mind many, many times. I really cannot understand what happened there. Uh, probably it was the nature of the revolution, the fact that they control both, uh, well, the economic, political, and military power, the fact of the confrontation with the U.S., but up to now, they have been able to keep control in the worst imaginable circumstances. And that's, that's really something unusual in, in, in history. OK, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, Elliot Wolf, a regular attendee to the ambassador's events. Uh, this was an excellent presentation of the political and the economic circumstances of Cuba. The last, last few questions ask, what is the, how, how can Cuba become self-sufficient and, uh, and, and improve the economy and the lifestyle of its people? And the summary also was, Cuba was the beneficiary of Russian support, was the beneficiary of Venezuelan support, and the hope was that there perhaps be American tourism or something else. It's not going to be cigars. It's not going to be sugar. It's not going to be um, any, any large commercial, not oil. It's going to be Iran. There are cracks in the South American and Central American communist regimes of late um, that have been growing, it seems to me. Um, you have Bolivia, you have Ecuador, um, you have these demonstrations in Nicaragua, um, you have the Venezuelan evolution, and you have the potential for a similar decline in Cuba, and you have issues in Colombia. It seems to me that this is not an economic issue, it's who's going to be the next godfather for Cuba. And the next obvious godfather seems to me to be the country that's making trouble already in Central and South America. Uh, <clears throat> well, um, what can I say? Well, I, I hope that Cuba never pretends to be self-sufficient, because any country that pretends to be self-sufficient will impose poverty on its population, especially if you are a small country. You know, that, that's that's the, the reason for international trade. Uh, but Cuba is not self-sufficient, and it cannot interact in a normal way in the international trade arena. Uh, so I, I, I do hope that Cuba at some point, but that, that goes through major economic and even political changes, will be able to exploit its uh, competitive advantages, uh, which are many, potentially, at least. 
but that needs a different kind of, of, of regime. Cuba is a country that doesn't produces what the population needs. Uh, you can never pretend that, but at least basic staples that could be produced in Cuba very efficiently are not produced because of the system, not because of the conditions of the, of the island. Cuba doesn't have a flow of trade with its natural partner, that in this case is the US, because it could be complementary e economies. Um, so it, it, everything goes through, from my point of view, a new or, or at least a major change uh, in the in the policies of the of the regime. Uh, let me let me say one one thing. There, yeah, there is talk about the role of Iran and uh, Hezbollah and terrorist groups in in Latin America. Uh, I remember Politico a year ago or something like that. No, six months ago had a very had a very long. The publication political had a very long article on Hezbollah in, in Latin America and the used cars and all of this. I I I take your word as you know you I, I had a question mark you have a statement, but I also think that some of this has to do well also one thing about to to sustain the this rule beyond reasonability, well scarcity is a strategy of domination. I mean, as well, right? Uh, there is a lot of literature on uh, lines, cues in, in in Communist Party systems as a demobilizing tool and uh, to make population passive. When you have to go to one line for butter, one line for toilet paper, uh, you have no time and no incentives for collective action. So uh, some of this is the logic, the perverse logic of the Maduro regime, actually, you know, the, the you know, hunger bones, the bonds in the, in the, the dead paper, the, the refusal to accept international aid is to, to keep people, you know, hungry and, and passive and, and sick. Now, there is also something related to this, which is the logic of parties that do not conceive themselves out of power. Uh, and it's not only communist parties. I mean, there are parties that have conceived themselves only in power, are un unable to invest in, in losing. You know, for, for in politics, a, a, a defeat is an investment, an investment in, in being able to come back uh, before you destroy all your political capital and your credibility. And, and there are some parties that don't do it because this is the Gattopardo metaphor. Uh, the PRI also had a, the same strategy in the the PRI in Mexico in the 90s. They didn't, they didn't conceive, themselves, conceive themselves out of power, and they started with economic changes, like China. China is the you know, perfect case, because changes began in 1975, after Nixon's visit, and they managed to build a successful capitalist economy with the monopoly of power. The PRI wanted something like that, and that's during the Salinas years, ambitious economic reforms to be able to rebuild a very a depleted political capital at the time for the dominant party. They managed to win the next election, 94, with Cedillo, but then they lost. And they had the wisdom, when they lost, of turning power over and going home. Uh, not entirely. We know in Mexico, Mexican politics is peculiar, but they produced something unique and unexpected. 
at the time when they lost the 2000 election, everybody thought, I mean, in academia, we all thought only the PRI could rule Mexico. And it wasn't true. Others ruled Mexico, the PRI turned over power, nothing happened. And was able to come back, by the way, now, this, this administration. So this is the drama that we're facing, because it's not only is the Evo Morales, whatever, he's not Communist Party, but Evo Morales wants to stay forever. Ortega has managed to sort of, you know, push his time in office longer than uh, it was supposed to be. Correa wants to stay longer than he was supposed to be. This is a, the drama of not being able, not being able to give up power, uh, and uh, which, paradoxically, former communist leaders in Central Europe did, you know, turn over power. Uh, okay, the gentleman. Uh, Henry Hatke, retired government. Um, I, regarding the economy, um, you look at uh, Brazil with the development of ethanol and ethanol-powered vehicles, and Cuba basically seems to have this nostalgia for the 1950s American automobiles, and then they've put uh, Czech-built engines. Uh, they're still running on gasoline into them, uh, you look at the ineffectiveness of, of how they have their automobile industry, if that's what it is. Uh, what can be said? Uh, have they looked at ethanol at all? Uh, sugar is one of the, the basic compositions for the best type of ethanol. People have complained about American ethanol. It's corn design as opposed to sugar. It's not as effective. Uh, we have a 10% ethanol requirement here. The UN itself is against ethanol. They say it uses too much water and that the water should be saved for the parched areas of the earth. Well, there's plenty of rain in some areas, and if that's the case, like Cuba, have they looked at this? What are their plans, and what are they up to, if anything? Well, um, well I think that there, there are like different levels that have to be... Uh, taking into account regarding your question, well, first, let's assume that ethanol has a future. And I am not that sure about that because the internal combustion engines are gradually passing away, but, but, but let's assume that that's, that's the case. So the second question here is whether Cuba is prepared to be a, an important producer of ethanol given the current circumstances of the, of the government and the regime? And I think that the answer is not. And the second is, if those circumstances change, whether it might be more feasible, uh, rational to produce ethanol than to produce sugar or produce something else using the, the land or the island. That's something that the market will have to decide, but there is no market economy in Cuba. So I think everything passes through a market economy in, in order to, to have something that is really rational and that given the future of ethanol, you can connect the Cuban economy to to that. I remember when the, the ethanol, let's say, boom started, at least conceptually, that Fidel Castro wrote many articles against that, because he said that uh, using land to produce ethanol will mean not using it to produce uh, food. And uh, he criticized a lot that. 
but well, Cuba doesn't produce ethanol and it doesn't produce food, so it's, it's the worst of the, all scenarios possible. One final question. Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm a visiting scholar of the uh, Russia Law Center of Science. And uh, uh, as for com comparison with, uh, I'm not Chinese, but um, the, I think the second largest supporter for Cuba are not Iran, but China. And as for economic reform and security threat for the US, how do you evaluate deals comparing with like uh, Vietnam or North Korea? which were also supported by China. Uh, so I need to write some uh, journal article about it. For well, if China is going to become the new godfather using a lot of terminology, uh, I think China has a different uh, way of uh, exercising influence, right? I mean, with trade and investment, but uh, hands off. The politics, and that was has been doing hands off the the politics. Uh, that's what has been doing in in Latin America, and that's that's what's have been doing in, in in Venezuela. And and now has got rid of good chunk of debt, Venezuelan debt, because Venezuela is in trouble. So uh, it, it could happen, but uh, you know that's that's not th something I can imagine right now. I agree. I agree with Hector. I think that you know China will not subsidize the Cuban economy. I think that China is more realistic, more um, pragmatic in that regard. What I have read is that in 2017, the the amount of trade exchanges between Cuba and China diminished a little bit, and that's because. Cuba was not able to pay certain obligations with China, and so China reduced its shipments to Cuba. So it's more, you know, you can have ideological um, agreements or common ground, but here we are taking, we are talking about a, a government or a system, the Chinese system, which is market-oriented with a uh, single-party rule. It's, it's different than what is happening in Cuba. And I don't think that they are able or, or eager to support Cuba, Cuba unless they come to the conclusion that there are real efforts on the part of the Cuban leadership to transform the economy. And in this, in this case, it will not be exactly a, subsidizations of the economy, but rather uh, incentives in order to, to change this. But I do agree with Hector also on the fact that China is very cautious in the political area, and I don't think that they want at any uh, rate, try, try, um, they, they don't want to challenge the US politically so close to, to its territory, really. Okay. Dear friends, thank you very much. I thank you for your presence here this afternoon. We'll keep you posted on the future events. And uh, let's give a final round of applause for <laughs> good speakers.